0: Welcome to the Stephen Mansfield Audio Podcast. Well, let's do some back talk this week. Let's read some of the questions that have been sent in to this program. Uh, To our podcast, that are so interesting fascinating. I love the diversity of people we have writing in listening to this podcast Uh, People who want to engage in dialogue. It really is exciting Uh, So i'm just going to get to it I'm not going to read the names of anybody who has written in because I think that's unfair But i'm very interested in the questions The first one has to do with the fact that the right the political right in america seems to be very upset with barack obama about these invasions of privacy the irs process and um uh, restrictions of uh, sort of uh, Tea Party and right leaning political organizations, um, the uh, culling of um, you know phone calls and what have you—all of this, all these invasions of privacy that we're uh, reading about with the Obama administration. Uh, this particular writer, this particular questioner asks, um, "Didn't this start under George W. Bush?" And uh, to that, I can only respond: Absolutely. In fact, it started before that. Uh, The reality is that uh, we have had a trend towards an invasion of individual rights uh, for quite some time throughout a a number of administrations, and never in this podcast have I ever contended that this was anything but a bipartisan issue. I think both the right and the left, both Democrats and Republicans, um, have overstepped. I think that individual rights, constitutional rights, privacy rights are invaded often, and I think the legal basis is being set for something that our founding fathers would have been absolutely horrified by. Um, in fact, intrusions of uh, privacy that went far beyond what they endured uh, when you know they decided to break from the uh, from their um, the, from England. So, yes, uh, it is a bipartisan issue. It never should it be seen as anything else. Um, There have been violations on both sides of the political aisle, and they continue. Uh, Another person says, uh, you um, pro-lifers do not seem to believe in a right to privacy. Um, The basis of this question, by the way, is that um, when Roe v. Wade was uh, ruled upon by the Supreme Court in 1973, the basis for that ruling was um, that there is a right to privacy inherent in the Constitution and that that right to privacy extends to a pregnant woman. Well. Uh, yes, you're 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 right, sort of. <laughs> we do believe uh, there is a right to privacy in the Constitution. Obviously, the Constitution guarantees that American citizens will be free from unreasonable searches and seizures and what have you. Um, however, the difference between the fundamental difference between those who are pro and anti-abortion, I think, I believe, um, is that. The, uh, we believe, I believe, those of us who are anti-abortion believe that uh, after conception, there is a separate human being forming in the body of a woman. Um, now, this may, there may be some inherent unfairness about this because men do not endure the same thing. It doesn't change the fact uh, that from our Judeo-Christian worldview, from the science as we perceive it, um, yes, once conception occurs, there is a separate human being Forming in a woman's body, and that that human being has uh, rights, has protection. Um, is to be uh, kept from not only unreasonable searches and seizures, but from death. And so that is the fundamental difference. We do believe that a woman has a right to privacy. We do not believe that right to privacy extends to a completely separate human being, even when that human being is um, growing in her own body. And of course, that's the fundamental debate. But obviously, uh, we believe, in a right to privacy in the Constitution. Um, connected to this issue of abortion, a number of people have written in and said, what What was the big deal about the Gosnell situation? Um, why did people, especially people who are pro-life, anti-abortion, um, why did they get so upset? Well, let me explain this for just a moment. Some of you will remember that uh, Dr. Gosnell was an African-American doctor in, uh, Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, and uh, he uh, was found to have committed um, really, really horrible uh, atrocities, really, in his abortion clinic. Um, and when that came to light, the not only were these atrocities so horrifying uh, that they shot through the news, but there was a very quick trial in which he was found guilty of murder. Um, the 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 thing you have to understand about the Gosnell situation is that it was everything those of us who are opposed to abortion suspect is happening at times, and uh, everything every it confirmed every doubt we have about the role of the state in abortion. Um, we uh, argue and are are concerned that though we're opposed to abortion being legal. Um, We are especially concerned that horrible things are happening that no one's aware of in abortion clinics. In other words, um, if we're going to kill children in the womb, who's to even make that procedure that we don't think is moral? Who's to even guarantee some moral restraints, uh, some some medically wise and um, humane restraints upon the process? Is it just open open season on the unborn? And so obviously the state and those who are pro-abortion respond, well, the state will make sure that there are humane procedures and that you know, babies are not being slaughtered wholesale. I know this is an unpleasant topic, but still this is basically the, the argument. Well, the Gosnell situation confirmed the suspicion that the state's not paying much of attention. Uh, there had been employees who had filed complaints with the state. Um, there were horrible, horrible, ghastly things happening in Gosnell's office. I'm going to be a little bit graphic here, so prepare yourself, and if children are listening, you might want to be careful. Um, Babies were found to have been drowned in toilets. Um, Dr. Gosnell would snip the spines of babies born alive in order to kill them. Uh, Parts of babies born alive were kept in, uh, in jars. Preserved in jars with, I guess, some formaldehyde or other chemicals that would preserve those parts. Um, it it had the appearance, or at least it sounded like, for those of us who are listening to the news, um, a chamber of horrors, and that is exactly what opponents of abortion suspect is taking place. Not in every abortion clinic, we're not we're not crazy, but is uh, certainly. Arising because the state is incapable of monitoring all these facilities. And I I believe it came out in the trial, the Gosnell situation, uh, that the state had not inspected or visited. There had not been a site inspection of that abortion clinic in about a decade and a half. And this is despite the fact there were actual complaints from the employees themselves. And some employees even, uh, resigned because of the horrors that were happening there. So it was, uh, it was ghastly for all of those reasons. And of course confirmed our, our great concerns. Um, A number of people have asked me about the podcast I did about Washington, D.C. It's summertime. It's time to travel. A lot of people are considering following up on my suggestion that you visit Washington, D.C., the city I spend half my year in and just think is an amazing city. And so a a large number of questions had to do with what's the least expensive way to do Washington, D.C. Well, let me just give a very, very quick overview. Um, If you're going to fly in, the best way to fly in is to fly into Reagan Airport on the weekend. Reagan Airport, um, the former national airport, is is sort of a commuter commuter airport for um, D.C. folks. And so on the weekends, it's uh, far less expensive. You can get very inexpensive flights often if you fly in and out on the weekends because the commuters have already – uh, come and gone on Friday. So Saturday, uh, usually early on Sunday, you can get good rates. Believe it or not, Alexandria, which is one of the ritziest parts of the D.C. area, um, has very low hotel rates. I don't understand it to this day, but um, you can spend $200 in one of the other uh, areas of D.C. for a hotel and, gosh, up $400, 500 you know, $10,000 a night if you want to. But if you're looking for the 60 70 $80 hotel room, which is about average in America right now, Um, Alexandria, believe it or not, the the beautiful colonial city along the Potomac, um, it has the best rates in the D.C. area. Um, I highly recommend that you take the metro around the city. It's easy to learn. Uh, The the staff are very, very helpful. It's safe. It's not, you know, like those 1970s subway movies, uh, murder movies of New York, nothing like that. Very safe, very clean. Um, and very easy to use, and the staff will help you. It, it means that you'll get from place to place 3 $4. You might spend, you can have a day pass for about 8 to $10. Um, it's by far the cheapest and the safest way to get around the city. If you're going to go outside the city, some people asked about this. Once you've done D.C., uh, if you're going to go outside the city, um, I'd recommend three cities if you have a car. Annapolis, uh, Mount Vernon is not a city, but it's George Washington's historic home. And then Monticello, which is Thomas Jefferson's historic home. Uh, Really amazing. Monticello is about three hours away. Mount Vernon, about 45 minutes. Annapolis, about 45 minutes to an hour. Annapolis not only has the Naval Academy, but it has more um, original 18th century buildings than any other American city. So it's pretty amazing. Um, People have asked for some kind of guidance about how to see D.C. Um, I'm not making a religious statement when I tell you that the, the the heart of D.C. is the mall and it's shaped like a cross. Uh, the U.S. Capitol at one end, uh, or basically Capitol Hill, Arlington National Cemetery at the other end of the cross, and then the cross beams would be defined by the Jefferson Memorial in the White House. So if you will work around that cross, you will see the heart of the D.C. Uh, museums and monuments. Uh, there are many, many other things to see, of course, but if you're going to be there for a few days and you're willing to walk, um, you can just move from building to building. You'll see, if you just move around the shape of that cross, many of the Smithsonian's, many of the beautiful monuments, the Capitol itself, which has a beautiful visitor center now with films and everything, um, up on the hill, of course, Library of Congress and the and the Supreme Court. And people often ask me where to eat, where, where, where would I recommend. I think the best place to eat, even if you have to get on the metro and um, go away from where you are, Uh, to get something good to eat is at Union Station. Union Station has a food court that has, at least until recently, and I think it still is, you know, it pretty much fell from heaven. I mean, you can do everything from sushi to Indian to uh, every kind of thing. It's not like a mall food court. It's much, much, much better. And I think Union Station is one of the most beautiful buildings in D.C. So there's my flyover. Somebody asked a final question. uh, What's my favorite building in Washington, D.C.? It's the Library of Congress, an absolutely stunning building. And a final question from uh, one of the folks listening to our podcast. They, they've heard me talk about public speaking. They've heard me talk about developing a speaking voice. They've heard me talk about the media training that I do uh, with a lot of leaders as part of my executive coaching. Um, and so they've asked a bit more about that. Fundamentally, here's how it works. I believe that everybody has uh, a, a natural public speaking voice. It takes some time to develop. Um, it's the way they present in public, even if they're shy, even if they're introverted, even if they don't have a strong voice, everybody can develop a way of speaking to, um, from a small crowd to, you know, a larger crowd, if that's what's required in your life. There's a natural engaging manner in which I think each person, uh, can learn to speak that, that fits their soul and fits the way they're wired. Usually that speaking voice gets messed up throughout their lives. For congressmen and senators, it often gets messed up because they've had bad consultants or, or wrong advice. For the average guy working at a company who gives the occasional report, it gets messed up because of, who knows, anything from harsh parenting to criticism of their speaking when they were in school, you know, high school speaking class or uh, speech class or, or whatever. But, but what I do is untangle the knots. Of a, per, of a person's, well, maybe their psychology, but certainly what they're attempting to do um, in their speaking. Some people are trying to mimic somebody they've heard. Some people have no idea what they're doing when they speak. They're just trying to get through it and rush. Some people speak way too rapidly. Some people, you know, everybody's got their quirk. Uh, some people are so terrified of the audience that they just can hardly focus on what they have to say. So I'm untying the knot in the soul that relates to speaking, not their entire psychology, but just as it relates to speaking. And then I'm helping them structure and organize their speaking in a way that's natural to them. I believe everybody can speak and speak effectively. And um, so our work is both with the individual and in their speaking style. Then we move to the content of how they speak, the structure, the insertion of humor, even even the body language. Um, and of course, at the big, broad level, we actually handle the speeches of campaigns and, um, and entire political careers and executive careers. So, those are fascinating questions. We get lots of questions. We'll choose another round here very soon. But, write us at backtalk at mansfieldgroup.com. We are eager to hear from you. Let's keep the dialogue happening. Stephen Mansfield is a New York Times bestselling author, a popular speaker. Frequent faith and culture commentator on CNN, Fox, and The Huffington Post. His groundbreaking books on faith and in society include *The Faith of George W. Bush*, *The Faith of Barack Obama*, *The Search for God in Guinness*, *Lincoln's Battle with God*, and *Killing Jesus*. You can learn more about Stephen at MansfieldGroup.com and we connect with him on Facebook and on Twitter under the name Mansfield Writes. The Stephen Mansfield podcast is produced by Isaac Darnold, who also wrote. Performed and produced the Rockin' and Rollin' podcast theme song. This is a Chartwell Literary Group production.